folks. Open mic number, let's say 78, because uh, that sounds like a great number right now. Happy Thanksgiving to you, your uh, your family, your loved ones, uh, people that you don't know uh, help you, which I think there's probably a lot of those people in our life. We don't uh, appreciate everybody that we, uh, I mean, not take for granted, but, you know, abuse and uh, take stuff from. So, yeah, for granted, I guess. Uh, today on the podcast, Patrick O'Grady. Um, I'm not sure how many of you know Patrick, but um, Pat was one of the guys who, um, you know, when, when you first start writing, for a lot of us, there was this uh, crew that um, went on the local group ride, and they, they were the ones who told you when to sprint. Uh, when not to sprint, how long to pull for, when to attack, when not, when to go easy, when to stop to piss. There were these group rides. I don't think those group rides really exist much these days. Um, I feel now with like the whole popularity of cycling growing, it's much more of a anybody shows up. And those group rides now are kind of a free-for-all. But in Colorado Springs, it was a very small scene maybe seven, eight guys, and Patrick was one of the first guys on that scene, and he was one of the guys who uh, would tell me uh, when I was fucking up and when I was doing right. Uh, Patrick, actually, he, I don't know if I brought this up to him, it's been so long, this uh, this conversation I had was probably three or four weeks ago, but Patrick used to put on a cross race here in town, and I did it once, and he crashed me, inadvertently, but he still crashed me, and I forgot if I brought that up to him, but... I really feel like uh, I deserve to maybe punch him, or I deserve something. I, I'm left wanting, Patrick. Um, but I like Pat. Uh, he's irreverent. Uh, he's very honest. He uh, is a man unto himself, which I appreciate uh, very, very much. And his candid nature in this podcast... Um, probably the most candid and open um, person yet. So even though he's not this uh, big time bike racer and um, Hall of Famer, he does have some good drug stories nonetheless. And I think he's, um, not to not to put everybody else off, but, but I really feel like this is one of my favorite conversations I had. Other than that, um, Podcast is again supported by Cardo Cyclist. You guys are doing really great. Um, if it, you know, I know you guys do it, and I recognize it. But if you guys could just keep up, you know, mentioning uh, mentioning Cardo Cyclist and uh, telling them because we're getting to the point where it's starting. You know, we're going to have the renewal conversation of renewal of the sponsorship contract. And uh, I'd really appreciate it if you guys can uh, help me keep this going. You know, like it's not a um, entirely free endeavor, and uh, I would like to keep this going. I, I enjoy it, and uh, I, I understand that it's rough sometimes. The audio is not great, and I'm not a professional. I don't really want to be professional. I'm not a journalist, and I'm sure there's times you guys wished that I didn't interrupt, and I, I, I asked other conversations, but. Fuck guys, this is where I'm at. You know, like this is this is live by the sword, die by the sword. That is me right now. So, um, I just wanted to 
say that and also that it is Thanksgiving and I'm really thankful for everybody in my life who's um, supported me through some really bad times. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, uh, the easiest guy to get along with sometimes and I have really remarkable friends who um, put up with my shit and I, uh, I just want to say that I'm, I'm really thankful and I, I love all of you out there. All right, here's the podcast. restaurant it's about Alice and the restaurant but Alice's restaurant is not the name of the restaurant that's just the name of the song and that's why I call the song Alice's restaurant you can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant you can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant. Now it all started two Thanksgivings ago, it was on two years ago on Thanksgiving when my friend and I went up to visit Alice at the restaurant, but Alice doesn't live in the restaurant, she lives in the church nearby the restaurant in the bell tower with her husband Ray and Fotch is a dog, and living in the bell tower like that, they got a lot of room downstairs where the pews used to be, and having all that room, seeing as how they took out all the pews, they decided that they didn't have to take out their garbage for a long time. We got up there, we found all the garbage in there, and we decided it'd be a friendly gesture for us to take the garbage down to the city dump. So we took the half a ton of garbage, put it in the back of a red VW microbus, took shovels and rakes and implements of destruction, and headed on toward the city dump. Well, we got there, and there's a big sign and a chain across the dump saying closed on Thanksgiving, and we had never heard of a dump closed on Thanksgiving before, and with tears in our eyes, we drove off into the sunset looking for another place to put the garbage. We didn't find one. Till we came to a side road, and off the side of the side road was another 15-foot cliff, and at the bottom of the cliff was another pile of garbage, and we decided that one big pile is better than two little piles, and rather than bring that one up, we decided to throw ours down. That's what we did. Drove back to the church, had a Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat, went to sleep and didn't get up until the next morning when we got a phone call from Officer Obi. said, kid, we found your name on an envelope at the bottom of a half a ton of garbage and just wanted to know if you had any information about it. And I said, yes, sir, Officer Obi, cannot tell a lie. 
I put that envelope under that garbage. After speaking over for about 45 minutes on the telephone, we finally arrived at the truth of the matter and said that we had to go down and pick up the garbage and also had to go down and speak to him at the police officer station. So we got in the red VW microbus with the shovels and rakes and implements of destruction headed on toward the police officer station. Now, friends, there was only one or two things that Obi could have done at the police station, and the first was that he could have given us a medal for being so brave and honest on the telephone, which wasn't very likely and we didn't expect it. Another thing was that he could have bawled us out and told us never to be seen driving garbage around the vicinity again, which is what we expected. But when we got to the police officer station, there was a third possibility that we hadn't even counted upon, and we was both immediately arrested, handcuffed. And I said, Obi, I don't think I can pick up the garbage with these handcuffs on. I said, shut up, kid. Get in the back of the patrol car, and that's what we did. Sat in the back of the patrol car and drove to the, quote, scene of the crime, unquote. I want to tell you about the town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where this happened here. They got three stop signs, two police officers, and one police car. But when we got to the scene of the crime, there was five police officers and three police cars being the biggest crime of the last 50 years, and everybody wanted to get in a newspaper story about it. And they was using up all kinds of cop equipment that they had hanging around the police officer station. They was taking plastic tire track footprints, dogs, smelling prints, and they took 27 8 by 10 color glossy photographs with circles and aisles and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against us. Took pictures of the approach, the getaway, the northwest corner and southwest corner, and that's not to mention the aerial photography. After the ordeal, we went back to the jail. Obi said he was going to put us in the cell. Said, kid, I'm going to put you in the cell. I want your wallet and your belt. And I said, Obi, I can understand you wanting my wallet so I don't have any money to spend in the cell, but what do you want my belt for? And it said, kid, we don't want any hangings. Said, Obi, did you think I was going to hang myself for littering? Obi said he was making sure, and friends Obi was, cause he took out the toilet seat so I couldn't hit myself over the head and drown. And he took out the toilet paper so I couldn't bend the bars, roll out the roll the toilet paper out the window, slide down the roll and have an escape. Obi was making sure, and it was about four or five hours later that Alice, remember Alice? It's a song about Alice. Alice came by and with a few nasty words to Obi on the side, bailed us out of jail. We went back to the church, had another Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat and didn't get up until the next morning when we all had to go to court. We walked in, sat down. Obi came in with a 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back each one. Sat down man came in said all rise we all stood up and obi stood up with the 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures and the judge walked in sat down with the cni dog and he sat down we sat down obi looked at the cni dog then the 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one and looked at the cni dog 
And then the 27, 8 by 10, colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one and began to cry because Obi came to the realization that it was a typical case of American blind justice and there wasn't nothing he could do about it. And the judge wasn't going to look at the 27, 8 by 10, colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against us. And we was fined fifty dollars and had to pick up the garbage in the snow, but that's not what I came to tell you about. Came to talk about the draft. We got a building down New York City, it's called Whitehall Street, where you walk in and you get injected, inspected, detected, infected, neglected, and selected. I went down and got my physical examination one day, and I walked in and sat down. Got good and drunk the night before, so I looked and felt my best when I went in that morning. Cause I wanted to look like the all-American kid from New York City. Man, I wanted, I wanted to feel like all. I wanted to be the all-American kid from New York. And I walked in, sat down, I was hung down, brung down, hung up and all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly things. And I walked in, I sat down, they gave me a piece of paper, said, kid, see the psychiatrist, room 604. And I went up there, I said, shrink, I want to kill. I mean, I want, I want to kill. Kill. I want, I want to see, I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Eat dead, burnt bodies. I mean, kill. Kill. Proceeded on down the hall, getting more injections, inspections, detections, neglections, and all kinds of stuff that they was doing to me at the thing there. And I was there for two hours, three hours, four hours. I was there for a long time, going through all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly things, and I was just having a tough time there. And they was inspecting, injecting every single part of me, and they wasn't leaving no part untouched. Proceeded through, and I when finally came to see the very last man, I walked in, walked in, sat down after a whole big thing there, and I walked up and said, what do you want? He said, kid, we only got one question. Have you ever been arrested? I proceeded to tell him the story of Alice's Restaurant Massacre with full orchestration and five-part harmony and stuff like that, and then all the phenomena stopped me right there and said, kid, did you ever go to court? I proceeded to tell him the story of the 27, 8 by 10, colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows, and a paragraph on the back of each one that stopped me right there and said, Kid, I want you to go over and sit down on that bench that says Group W. Now, kid! I walked over to, to the bench there, and there's, there's Group W's where they, where they put you if you may not be moral enough to, to join the army after committing your special crime. And 
Here was all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly-looking people on the bench there as mother rapers, father stabbers, father rapers, father rapers sitting right there on the bench next to me. And one day was mean and nasty and ugly and horrible and crime-fighting guys are sitting there on the bench. And the meanest, ugliest, nastiest one, the meanest father raper of them all, was coming over to me. And he was mean and ugly and nasty and horrible and all kinds of things. And he sat down next to me and said, kid, what'd you get? I said, I didn't get nothing. I had to pay $50 and pick up the garbage. He said, what were you arrested for, kid? And I said, littering. And they all moved away from me on the bench there to carry a bone, all kinds of mean, nasty things, till I said, and creating a nuisance. And they all came back, shook my hand, and we had a great time on the bench talking about crime, mother stabbing, father raping, all kinds of groovy things that we was talking about on the bench. And everything was fine, we were smoking cigarettes and all kinds of things until the sergeant came over, had some paper in his hand, held it up, and said, kids, this piece of paper's got 47 words, 37 cents, it's 58 words. We want no details of crime, town, crime, and that kind of thing. Got slapped down to the back of crime, one of the rest, and officers, name, and that kind of thing. You got to say and talk for 45 minutes, and nobody understood a word that he said. But we had fun filling out the forms and playing with the pencils on the bench there. And I filled out the massacre with the four-part harmony, and... Wrote it down there just like it was And everything was fine And I put down a pencil And I turned over the piece of paper And, and there There on the other side In the middle of the other side Away from everything else on the other side In parentheses Capital letters quotated read the following words Kid, you rehabilitated yourself. I went over to the sergeant and said, Sergeant, you've got a lot of damn gall to ask me if I've rehabilitated myself. I mean, I mean, I mean, I just, I'm sitting here on the bench. I mean, I'm sitting here on the group W bench Cause you wanna know if I'm moral enough to join an army Burn women, kids, houses, and villages after being a litter bug He looked at me and said, kid You don't like your kind And we're gonna send your fingerprints off to Washington And friends, somewhere in Washington Enshrined in some little folders and studying black and white of my fingerprints and the only reason I'm singing you the song now is cause you may know somebody in a similar situation or you may be in a similar situation and if you're in a situation like that there's only one thing you can do is walk into the shrink wherever you are just walk in say shrink you can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant and walk out. 
You know, if one person, just one person does it, they may think he's really sick and they won't take him. And if two people, two people do it in harmony, they think they're both faggots and they won't take either of them. And if three people do it, can you imagine three people walking in, singing a bar, Alice's restaurant, and walking out? They may think it's an organization. And can you, can you imagine 50 people a day? I said 50 people a day walking in, singing a bar, Alice's restaurant, and walking out. And friends, they may think it's a movement. And that's what it is. The Alice's Restaurant Anti-Massacre Movement. And all you gotta do to join is to sing it the next time it comes around on the guitar. With feeling. So we'll wait till it comes around on the guitar here. Sing it when you're done. Here it comes. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. That's horrible. One and Warren stuff, you gotta sing loud. You could put a lot. I've been singing the song now for 25 minutes. I could sing it for another 25 minutes. I'm not proud <laughs> or tired. So we'll wait till it comes around again. This time with four part harmony in the feeling. We're just waiting for it to come around is what we're doing. Fire. No, I can't. I've, and I've honestly tried. Like, I've, 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 I bought, I was in Italy for like three months training. So you have nothing but, you know, four or five hours alone. You need some tunes in your head. Yeah. And like, the way I like to do it, like in the off season, I would do, um, I would go, like, so I'd pick an artist mm -hmm. for like that week. So you'd say like, okay, I'm going to revisit like the Stones or Bowie, and mm -hmm. I'm gonna go, and I do it chronologically. Every album chronologically, Straight right? To finish. Yeah. So then, like throughout the week, and so that'll take you like of a week. So what is that like? You say twenty-two hours of training mm -hmm. in five, six days. So you, so you, you, you might loop over once, but 
And then it's it's like a, it's it's fun when you're paying attention in that very yeah. focused manner. Yeah, you know, just sort of absorbing and taking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about it later. And I I uh, I was out of the loop on Arcade Fire, and I I tried. I I bought like <laughs> two or three of their things, uh-huh. and I. And I think I made it like a day and a half, and I was like, I don't get it. Yeah, I've been watching them on TV because they popped up on TV a lot lately. Yeah. Um, on SNL. Yeah. On, uh, that was a pretty funny bit they did on SNL yeah, about yeah. staff member or arc, mm-hmm. or band member. Yeah, that was good. That yeah. was good. But uh, maybe I'd like them better if I just listened to their music without looking at them. There's something <laughs> about watching them that puts me off. It's a really weird, pretentious vibe I get off my it's, art school sort of shit. It's a like, hey... Are we in a gypsy band or what are we this week? Are we churning butter? <laughs> or are we yeah. like yeah. I don't get if you're it's something when it's like it's natural when it like the, the person has a natural look about them, like they were yeah. born into that clothing or like they Tom were, Waits. You right. know he was born looking like that. Yeah. With the jazz bow beard and the hat on backwards and Yeah. That's yeah, and they don't look uh they I mean, and I mean, I guess it's not fair because a lot of musicians and rock stars like they they dress for they dress for the part, but they really look like they've put a lot of effort into the part. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Trolling a lot of thrift shops. <laughs> yeah, Macklemore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I haven't totally given up on the arcade fire. I, I think I'll revisit it lately, but I can't right now. <laughs> right now. Yeah, I had to listen to a lot of Tom Waits after hearing a lot of. <laughs> just to balance it out <laughs> yeah just sort of beat that sound back. no so I did the podcast with Neil Rogers and I reminded him of that and then you know so every podcast has like a, a movie and a music opener uh, and so I, of course I put Tom Waits oh you had to yeah just to like <laughs> go for some really gravelly shit I, yeah I went with the most actually I think I did something fairly uh, I think I did uh, let it rain, maybe. Something, yeah. something fairly easy. Mm-hmm. If you were trying to get somebody into Tom Waits, you'd give them that one first. Mm-hmm. Or, you, or you want to go way, way back to like uh, Hawks <laughs> at the Diner or right. Valentine. Like, yeah, how many movie, like how many David Lynch films will like any of the arcade fire people be in? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not going to happen. Or Coppola films. Yeah, exactly. Or Coppola would just throw Waits in there for the hell of it. It's like, I need somebody who looks really weird and sounds even stranger. Yeah. Stand in the corner and go, well, I don't know, Bob. <laughs> I have this, like, fucked up romantic fantasy that, like, Tom Waits is really Bukowski in a way. Like, because <laughs> they both have the same, like, you know, like, like the posture and. Like, see him sitting across the table. Yeah, they don't have a similar voice, but yeah, they're like, well, at least, I guess. I think Bukowski was meaner than Waits. Okay, yeah, no, I have a feeling that Waits is actually probably a really nice guy. He's just all, he just addresses the darkness. There's a lot of strange shit going on there, and he's had yeah. a lot of voices. No, whereas Bukowski was actually uh, a really, probably a pretty shitty person, but at least he was honest with it. It's true, he cranked it out. He cranked it. I got a lot of Bukowski in the office. Yeah, I got into him like really late. I didn't get into him until uh, maybe three years ago and just because I heard other people talking about him mm-hmm. and then yeah then you start just like searching the internet and then you're just like what the fuck is this and then you immediately <laughs> like go and buy the books and, yeah. and then it's, that's funny because even last night I was watching there's a Netflix um, Netflix put up a doc on him oh did they? No, yeah sure. yeah I haven't seen that 
So I just did like the total ham and agar thing, and like I think last last winter I was like in California, and I knew that he lived near San Pedro. So then you're like, you just Googled it real quick, and I found out that I was like. 20 miles from his grave. Oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah, so I went and saw his grave. Oh, cool. And on his grave, I don't know if you, you probably already know, but it just, like, it has boxing gloves, and it <laughs> says, don't try. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, it was really funny, like, because I, it's a fairly nondescript grave, grave site and mm-hmm. place, and... Well, that's appropriate. Yeah, and, like, it's funny, because people, like, the guy who works there doesn't know probably doesn't know Bukowski, so you're like, hey, yeah, is there a... He's like, yeah. And, like, he'll drive you there. He's like, people always come by to see this guy. And you're like, <laughs> well, maybe you should Google his name once. Yeah, check him out. Yeah. Um, he did a lot of work with Black Sparrow Press out of Santa Rosa. Uh, a lot of his books are, like, totally low-rent looking, you know. Sure, like, yeah, so right. Cranked him out on a Saturday afternoon because right. had nothing better to do. Yeah, it's like he was the... He was like a blogger. <laughs> he was like a blogger before his time, for real. Yeah, because he didn't he didn't censor, he didn't edit, he just wrote and threw it out there. You know, here you yeah. go, like it or not, I don't care. He just wanted to get it made. It didn't need to be for the highest dollar, or the the biggest uh, or the biggest publisher. He just needed yeah. to get it out there. He had a lot of shit to say, and there was just no shutting him up. Kind of like Kerouac, you know. Kerouac was serious about running off at the mouth, and yeah. uh, early on was not at all into self-editing. Yeah, um, and it showed. I mean, a lot of his stuff I found really obtuse, hard to get through because he'd veer off. It's like half-formed. Yeah, like he, he, clearly he had ADHD or something, you know. Sure, and sure. Just like oh, and then suddenly, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. It's you appreciate that he's doing almost a stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. But you're like, oh, I don't know, man. Maybe if you would have sat on this one. If you let it gestate just a little bit. Yeah, stretch, sit you know? on it, put it on your table, Water circle it, back in a month. Give it a little sunlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I find that, like, even like when I was doing, like, the little bit of stand up I was doing, like, mm-hmm. you'd write a joke, and then it was pretty, you thought it was funny, so then you'd go and do it on stage. I mean, then that was the joke, and mm-hmm. then you kind of walk away from it, and then. Like oh no no no! Like if I would have like done the mm-hmm. setup this way, mm-hmm. or if I changed the, it was uh, it goes from your dad's dog to your dog, and then like just these subtle changes. But it's like I've already told the joke. Like mm-hmm. I can't. I can go back to the same open mic, but eighty mm-hmm. percent of those people have already heard that fucking joke, <laughs> so they're, they're not going to notice the change, or they're just you know like they're not. Well, that's why Carlin took his act on the road so much. And yeah, before he would do an HBO special, he'd do Jesus, you know, thousands of hours of stand up in front of live audiences yeah. in Vegas and college towns and wherever, just working and honing in the act until he got at the point where he thought it worked, and then you go. You know, do it live, and HBO yeah. would shoot it, and he'd have something finished he could point to. But it was a real construction effort. It was yeah, that's what all those guys do now. Is they just like they'll tour for a year and get just a, a solid hour in, and then they once they once it goes to HBO, you know, like everybody's seen it, so you have to ditch it. Right. It's their way of like, all right, that's time to time to get some fresh goop going. Yeah. Here. Carlin has one of my favorite lines that I've always remembered. He said he was saying that his wife told him that he's a really angry person that he's a, he's a rage addict and he's like I'm not angry 
I'm easily disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> That's Carlin for real. Yeah, he's just like, look, we've been to the moon. We, uh, you know, you, we created penicillin. We have t television. Like we have things that are essentially magic. Mm -hmm. Like we have found magic, mm -hmm. and we continue to be the lowest rent <laughs> people that we can afford to be in that moment. Yeah. Like, I mean, what's the least we can do and get away with? Yeah, we have this magic wand, and what do we do with it? <laughs> right. We use it to tickle our prostate. <laughs> right. You're like, what pushes technology? Porn. Porn. Porn, you should. Oh, yeah, porn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, dude, I was looking at your uh, site real quick before I came over, and I never realized that you you did like a couple like mini podcasts before there were podcasts. Oh, yeah, a long time ago. When was it? It was like 405? Geez, I don't even remember. Um, when you get you know, when you get hold of technology, you just want to play with it and see yep. if you can do anything with it. Sure. And I always felt a little self-conscious uh, self talking into the microphone by myself. Yeah. <clears throat> it didn't. Uh, it didn't feel the same as writing. I like to write because you have a chance to go back and revise and play with it a little bit. There's a delivery in writing that you become comfortable with. Yes. Like, whenever I would tell jokes on Twitter, like, you have faith that the delivery in that person's mind mm -hmm. is a voice that they like, mm -hmm. a voice that they've created that's palatable. And where, and, you know, you the, the pause with the commas and the periods, it's so much more natural. Mm -hmm. Whereas the delivery of voice is... It's a different breed of dog, it really is. Yeah. Um, I played around with radio a little bit in college and high school. Um, in high school, I had a buddy who was uh, hooked up with one of the local radio stations, and we'd go in there and play with the equipment. Yeah, that's how you got all your free music for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, it's how you learned how to play with the toys, too. Sure. Um, so I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't get buried in it. I got buried in the writing, because uh, the writing and the drawing cartoons, because that was how I was making a living. Um, <clears throat> was that that? No, that was my stupid phone. I don't <laughs> turn off like a proper professional. So, you know, you, you write and you draw for 40 or 50 years, you start to get a hang for it, at least think you do. Sure. You're comfortable with the mediums. But um, if you don't play with the electronics, you don't play with sound and video, um, you feel like a, a real rank amateur when you're doing those things. Yeah. And you see the really good stuff that people are doing, and you say, I can't achieve that, so yeah. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going <laughs> to shut that off and go back to what I understand, which sure. is the writing and the drawing. Yeah. When did you start doing cartoons? Jesus, I can't remember. Uh, when like, I was a sprout, like just from the womb. Yeah, cartoons with crayons on the wall. You know, yeah. till the parents coughed up with pens and paper and said, "Here, draw on the paper. It's cheaper. We're renters." What did you like about it? Uh, well, I liked everything about it. Um, I was a comic book junkie growing yeah. up. Yeah, you know, Superman, Batman, The Flash, yeah, you know, Archie, anything that was a comic book because they're simple stories. Um, largely driven by the pictures. They're easy for a kid to pick up. Yeah. Um, and they were fantastic. They were yeah. worlds that you couldn't enter. They were worlds you would never be a part of. So you're just peeking in a window at somebody else's life. You're amazed at like the creativity of it too. You're just like, well, I didn't never saw that coming. Like this is yeah. what's going to happen. One of the things you can do in a comic that you can't do in real life, you know, yeah. like, you know, you see Batman throwing a punch, and it's just this ridiculous body with this massive arm and huge knuckles <laughs> bashing this guy upside the chin, and the chin is sliding away with the force of the blow. And 
the guy's eyes are shut and sweat's flying off of his head. Um, it makes things more real. It's sort of a freeze frame of things you might see on the street. Somebody gets punched on the street, all you see is a guy getting sure. punched. When Batman There's consequences. Guy, yeah. yeah. Batman punches somebody, it's like, oh yeah, so that's how it works. The fist hits the jaw. <laughs> the lower jaw goes off to one side. Yeah, you feel like you're taking a, a lesson in anatomy. You're like, yeah. okay, that bicep hits the jaw, mm -hmm. and that's how it works. And it's a good way to learn how to draw comics. I mean, yeah. If you're fascinated at all with pictures, um, you take a look at a, a Superman or a Batman comic, you say, well, maybe I'll try doing that. You know, so you, so you kind of see what they did with lines and... You color. mimic what you see, yeah. and then sooner or later you sort of drift off and start doing your own things. Do you remember like what the first regular comic strip you did, even like in junior high or high? Or did you have something that... I was, um, I was drawing editorial cartoons for my high school newspaper. Uh, I went to Mitchell, so I, I drew cartoons for them. Um, like but what it, would they would they be? They were editorial, political cartoons. Yeah. Like a, in the school politics or world politics? School politics for the most part. Wow, that's funny. So you <clears> had <throat> to like skewer your friends. Yeah, you get to make shit out of people in the school. You know, so Did that ever get you in any kind of like, dude? Why did <laughs> you draw that? Yeah, I was always in some kind of trouble for one thing or another. <laughs> Um, Would you get excited when you just found an angle and you're like, I can't wait till they see this? Oh yeah, because it's like stand-up. It's the yeah. same sort of thing, but with a delayed gratification. Because you don't get... The but that delay is great, isn't it? Like, you're just like, oh, three days. It's Christmas. Yeah. yeah. You get to unwrap a different gift, you know, once a week. Would people have to sign off on your editorial? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, when you're a kid, everybody's signing off on your stuff. You have your little editorial do you, group. Do you remember one that didn't get through? No, because I've been doing this too long now. I I don't even remember what I drew for the last issue of High School Retail. Okay, sure. Um, a lot of them get tossed by me. Um, I don't like a lot of what I do. And once I'm done with it, I pretty much don't like it at all anymore. Sure. No. I get the that. instant it, it ships off, I said, ah, shit, I could have done that better. It's like you and your stand. Yeah, yeah. You see holes in it. You deliver the joke, it's out there, and you can't bring it back, and you wish you could. But it seems... It, it seems infantile in that moment. You're like, oh, that's so easy. Yeah, or it's badly drawn. Right. Or it's poorly delivered. Yep. Or uh, if only I had drawn him looking this way instead of uh, that way. If the voice volume were on the uh, left instead of the yeah. right, it would be so much easier for people to drift through. Right. Um, yeah, so... You just drew... So you drew cartoons in there? Forever. I, and then that, did that got you directly... So I saw that you... You were... Went to a newspaper in Arizona first, oh, or no? no. Well, that's way down no, I, I was I was drawing for my high school paper. I started drawing for uh, an alternative newspaper here in Colorado Springs called Spoonful way back in the either late 60s or early 70s. What did like an alternative newspaper mean back then? Like, what was that? Mostly for dopers. Sure. You know, it sure. was um, stoner humor, yeah. stoner stories. Yeah. You know, how to how did you distribute it? Um, Hand them out. Go to music stores. You know they were free. Leave them lying around. Go down to the bar. Yeah. Know, just hey, can we leave these here, man? Yeah, sure, whatever. Right. Yeah. And how how is it funded? Like, would you get advertisers inside of it? You'd try to sell advertising, but mainly they were labors of love. They were sure. early zines, you know. Yeah. Uh, hard copy blogs, that sort of thing. None of them survived for any length of time, or if they did, they quickly became really corporate, like yeah. New Times out of Phoenix or uh, Village Voice out of New York. Right. 
you know, they, they get bought up and they get corporate. Uh, How long did you do the, the, the alternative paper for? Uh, not very long because none of them lasted very long. You know, they were, they were kind of like uh, small cycling clubs. Yeah. You know, they, they get started and everybody's really enthusiastic Eventually until they realize it. that it costs money and it takes work and, and fuck this, let's go do something else. Yeah, somebody, people get bored. Let's go out back and burn one, you know. Yeah, when you're doing it for free, eventually... It catches up with you. I mean, you've got to spend the money, right? You've got to go down and have the thing mimeographed or find somebody with a printing press and pay them yeah. to run it off for you. Yeah. And you've got to talk to people, and sometimes they don't like what you write down about them. So they get pissed off, and they tell all their friends, and they boycott your publication. Um, so it's interesting, but um, it was a short-lived sort of a fantasy. And uh, I went to college. I drew for all my college papers. What did you go to college? Um, Adam stayed for two years because it was the only place that would let me in. <laughs> My grades in high school were so bad. They were just beyond bad. Like DCs? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, sub 2.0. Yeah. I wasn't graduated. I was evicted. Yeah, right. They just got the root of you. Yeah, it's like, dude, we've had you here for three years. Go fuck with somebody <laughs> else, please. <laughs> You're just taking up good air, you know? There's a chair that could be filled by a kid who wants to. Learn. What kind of kid were you? Were you just like. Just a stoner dry bucket, or were you kind of an asshole, too? Um, it's hard to say. You know, I, you edit your memories. You get real selective. Yeah, you that sort of thing. definitely get revisionist history. Yeah, I, I was like a third geek, a third jock, and a third stoner. What kind of jock were you? Swimmer. Yeah. You know, uh, I was too skinny to play football, and I had uh, no eye-hand coordination, so baseball was out. Um, None of the traditional sports interested me, except for uh, automobile racing. I thought auto, auto racing was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have a driver's license until I got done with my first year of college, so you know, racing cars was pretty much out of the question. Sure. Um, swimming was something I liked to do. Yeah. Um, we were living in Texas, so swimming was about the only thing you could do in the summertime. Um, so the old man got me on a swim team on base. Uh, we were Air Force. Oh, so that's why you moved around a bit. Yeah, Randolph Air Force Base. We were there for five years. So. Okay. Had to find something to do during the summer to get me the fuck out of the house. Sure. And get in the pool. You know, you can't do Little League. You can't play football. You can't shoot hoop worth of shit. Uh, well, try in the pool and see if you can swim. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I swam for 10 years. Um, it was never any good. Sure. So, what was your event? Uh, distance freestyle, like 400 free, 200 free. Okay. Um, occasionally anchor a, a relay, but you know, I was middle of the packer just like I was when I started racing bicycles. Yeah. Um, no talent, absolutely no <laughs> talent, but I could do it well enough to stay on a team. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, radio, well, he'll be our second man on the 400 this weekend, but you know, he's not going to be first. As long as it wasn't a good year talent wise, you were still in. I was still in. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was fun, you know, it was, it was a good way to pass the time, and it kept me from smoking too much stuff. Um, geeky, because I was interested in writing and uh, reading, um, and stoner, because I was interested in drugs, sure. and annoying my parents, which is, you know, a classical pastime. Right? Sure, You're, right, right, right. What can I do to drive my father insane, let's see. Uh, he's career Air Force, he flew 300 combat missions in World War II. I know what. I think I'll be a communist dope smoker. <laughs> and I'll come home and I'll tell him about it. Is that like, is the military lifestyle, like, is that what tuned you into politics first? Because maybe your parents talked about it a bit, or? 
Possibly, possibly. It was another way of annoying my parents. Sure. Um, Dad was Roman Catholic and Republican. Mom was Presbyterian and a Democrat. Wow. So they basically spent their entire lives canceling each other out. How'd they meet? <laughs> Where did they meet? Were they? Uh, they met when Dad was active duty, and Mom was. Um, I think she was a secretary for a, a general somewhere down in Panama. Okay. Um, she had left a home in Iowa that she wasn't too happy with. Went off, you know, careening around all over the world. The old man left a home that he was not too happy about. December eighth, nineteen forty-one, and started flying aircraft. And the two of them hooked up somewhere, got married in Las Vegas. Wow. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> then you came along. Then I came along and they said, well, we probably should have rolled over and gone to sleep that night. Well, let's try one more time. And they got my sister and said, that'll do. <laughs> no more. So maybe that's where the politics started then? Or? Probably. Because uh, did they like, would they have debates in front of you? Or? Yeah, they were, they were very interested in politics. They were also very interested in education. They wanted their kids to be better off than they were. So they spent a lot of time with us, trying to make certain that we had our eyes open, we were sure. paying attention. Um, Dad was hardcore Republican until John F. Kennedy came along. He's the only Democrat he ever voted for that I'm aware of. What did he like about Kennedy? There's this new Irish Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Irish fucking Catholic. I was just there's a new movie coming out about him really soon, and they, uh, I think it's like Rob Lozen or something. So I was listening. No to the, way. Yeah, I was listening to the interview Jesus. with this. <laughs> yeah, and they were just he was just talking about how nobody really at the time, like even the Democratic Party, didn't like him that much. Like he was just yeah, he was, such a divisive figure. Well, he was you know he was like your young flash in the pan. He was. Uh, World War II hero from a questionable family, you know, that maybe got it started. They called him like, they had a term, I haven't had the time to research it, they called him a blue dog Democrat. Do you know what that meant? Blue dog uh, Democrat is a term for uh, like right wing Democrats in the South, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, that's right, because they said people yeah. in the South would call him a blue dog Democrat. Yeah. I'm not quite certain how that applies to, uh, Kennedy. to Kennedy. He was sort of a trouser stain, you know, he was like this. This rich kid <clears throat> who decided to go off and fight World War II and, you know, got himself into a heroic role completely by accident <laughs> and comes back and plays it up to the White House, which is, you know, swell. Sure. For, for young people, he was very inspirational because he was this young, fit dude, you know, who still had some lingering injury issues from his heroic escapades in World War II. We'd look at him and we'd look at a guy like Lyndon Johnson and they didn't seem like the same breed of dog, but yeah. they were both Democrats, you know. Johnson looked like your prototypical party war horse, and then you look at uh, LBJ or uh, JFK and you think, young, hip, got a hot wife, you know, the yeah. kids are cool, they're playing football on the White House lawn. Yeah. This is a different kind of guy. Yeah, they got excited about it. Yeah, so, you know, you get wound up about it. You that, think. that turned your dad, your dad was... Well, he, Irish Catholic. You know, sure. it's the only chance he knew it was the only chance he was ever going to have to vote for an Irish Catholic, so he took it, and he was disappointed, of course. And uh, <laughs> when he got shot, we're down there in fucking Texas. We're living wow. on the Air Force Base. You know, he gets shot, and we're right there. Wow. Um, I'm reading to the class in what was it, fifth grade? I think it was. I was up in front, you know, because this is what you do. They grab sure. some poor sod from the class and say. Teacher's tired of teaching right now. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you read? 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna nurse my hangover. Yeah, I'm gonna go to the bathroom and tug one. You know, <laughs> why don't you sit up here and read to the kids? Uh, okay, whatever. But I'm reading to the kids, and over the loudspeaker comes the word that Kennedy's been shot. That's so crazy. They would announce that. Everybody shitting cupcakes. You know, it's like go home. School is done for the day. There was. I mean, I'm speaking from ignorance because obviously I wasn't alive then, but it seems like probably with the, there wasn't the 24-hour news, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't all those yeah. things. So, like, any kind of news about the president was big, and especially, like, the world must have seemed a lot smaller. Oh, yeah, because every TV station, all three of them, yeah, 24-7 is all Kennedy all the time from the shooting to the waiting by the hospital to the word that he had died to the succession to the presidency by Johnson, sure. to the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah. to the case on being trundled off to the cemetery. I mean, it was 24-7, Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy all the time. And yeah. for even a young kid like me, you notice that this is a tremendous changing of the guard. This, this young, hip, attractive, Irish Catholic dude sure. got smoked, and this Johnson cat is the one who's replacing him. He's this party warhorse, and it's back to business as usual. And fuck, yeah. what does this mean for the rest of us? What does this mean for the country? What does it mean for me personally? It must have been a tremendously depressing feeling. Yeah, it was quite an eye opener. And then you get old enough to see the consequences of the policies that JFK and his successor set in motion. And you realize that come 18, you know, you've got to sign up with the Selective Service. Sure. And there's a chance that they might just pick your ass up and send you off to that jungly little portion of the world that uh, some of your friends haven't come back from. Right. Um, was it like it if you're, you pretty quickly. Was it like if your Social Security or your driver's license number ended like they'd have like even days and odd days or some shit? Um, there, was a, um, there was a lottery when I came of age. Okay. So it was like everybody's birthday goes in the hopper and they pick out a ball and they say, hey, guess what? So it was just the birthday. Here's your ball. We so got if you're born like February 2nd, today's February 2nd day. Yeah, March 27th, 1954. Oh, do tell. So would they do the year too or yeah. is it just the birthday? Yeah, years. Years and birthdays. Wow. So um, how often would they do the lottery? I think it was an annual deal. Um, I was, I was uh, trying to avoid thinking about it because growing up in the military, um, you already have a, a pretty fair idea of what it's going to be like. Yeah. And I had problems with authority. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really care to subject myself to that sure. kind of authority because once they've got you, they've got you. Yeah. And if you like fucking up a lot, which I did, huh. and making a big hairy nuisance of yourself, it's all bad time, you know. Yeah. A two-year hitch in the army could last you 22 years. Yeah, yeah. You know? Did your dad know that? Did your dad even attempt to push you in that direction? Oh, he hell yes, hell yes. He wanted me to go to the Air Force Academy, but uh, I didn't have the grades, thank God. And uh, sorry, Dad, I'd love to go. <laughs> it's not happening, Pop. You know, they won't let me wear my hair down to my nuts and smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> did he just think that it would be like good for you? Like, all right, this will get him back on track. I'm, sh I'm sure he did. You know, yeah. he was thinking that, um, well, a hitch in the service just in general would probably do me a world of good. Yeah. Or was it more tradition, like I did it, it'd be nice for him to do it? Or... I think it was more of a question of, you know, we're going to straighten this boy out. Sure. Because I've not had any luck. Yeah. You know, here he is, you know, he's 17 years old, he's got hair down to his face. Drawing cartoons. He's drawing these fucking cartoons. 
What did he think of your cartoons? He saw some talent there, I think, but he thought it was misdirected. Yeah. Because it was all about challenging authority. So he saw you had focus on what you liked. Right. Yeah. Um, my friend Hal Walter, who was uh, another journalist, freelancer like me, um, also a product of a fairly strange home, he has a, an autistic son. You know, kid's, I think, nine years old now. And as a, as a result of living with this autistic kid for nine years, he's come to the conclusion that not only <laughs> is his kid autistic, but he probably is himself, and so are most of his friends yeah. to some degree. Somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah, me included. Yeah. And uh, we've agreed, you know, after talking about it for several years, that had such a diagnosis been available when we were his son's Harrison's age, they'd be filling us full of dope and sticking us in special classes sure. and trying to straighten us out, you know, wring yeah, all the bullshit yeah, yeah. out of us and get us on the straight and narrow. I find normally what helps with rebellious kids is to be even more strict. <laughs> what we need here is some fascism. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're going to respond well to that. We can just, is there a way we can crush their soul yeah. and like give them no hope? Can we possibly confine you? Can we stick you in this yeah. little narrow corridor so that you just we have a feeling, squeeze? Yeah. We have a feeling that when we give you options is when you fuck up. We want to give you no options. We want to limit your choices <laughs> so that you make the proper ones. I gotta run the bathroom real quick. That works right there. I think I've actually drank so much coffee, I actually broke my coffee taste buds. Like, I can't really drink it anymore. <laughs> I still like coffee. Not as much as I used to. When I was working for newspapers, you know, Coffee was your uh, accelerant of choice. And it was bad coffee, so it's these giant stainless steel, like military urns full of coffee down there sure. in the newsroom. And you just drink the shit until you're peeing brown every day. You just hope. Yeah, I think you just, you want, like, something. You just want the idea that this is going to give you some kind of energy. Yeah, this will this will light you up so you can finish that last school board story. Yeah. It could be, yeah. <laughs> so... What was the first newspaper, like, not like subversive paper, but what was your first, like... Actual newspaper? Yeah. <clears throat> that was the uh, the Colorado Springs Sun back in 1974. Okay. Or 73, 74. Eh, right around there sometimes. Sun's no longer with us. It, yeah. It got bought up and croaked. Um, but back then it was the alternative newspaper to the Gazette. It was, uh, the Gazette was the big, you know, morning, day. I think they were actually three times a day back in the late 60s, early 70s. So they had a morning edition, an afternoon, really? and then a late afternoon. I've never even heard of such a thing. Yeah, it was pretty common back in the day. Uh, back when people still actually read newspapers and yeah. advertised them. Yeah. It seems like a thousand years ago, because it was. Where would you get like all three editions? Like where would you, so let's say you, you just got done having lunch, you want to pick up the, the midday edition. Right down at the box. You, you just got the, the box on the street every day. So they, they literally like, come like, that's where maybe the turn came off, like hot off the presses. Like exactly. it must have still been warm at yeah. some level. Yeah. Hot off the presses, for real. It's just, the ink is still wet, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, wow, that must have been a logistical... It was a ma massive clusterfuck of epic proportions. Sure. Because you had three different staffs basically putting these papers out. You had the folks who did the overnight, you know, who would come into work at four in the afternoon and leave at one in the morning. They're putting out the morning paper. Then you'd have a daytime shift where people pop in to do, I think they called it the bulldog back in the day, which was that sort of a midday, 11 o'clock, noonish kind of 
rehash of some of the overnight shit with some fresh stuff yeah. for the daytime crowd. And then you have the PM version, which was, you know, basically recycled from the Bulldog and then what was... What was the heavier edition? Was it like the evening or the That'd morning? be the morning paper. The yeah, Because that's everything that happened all day long. Boom, lands on your doorstep at 4 o'clock in the morning. That must have required papers to have one hell of a staff. like Huge uh, staffs. Yeah. And a lot of specialty work on staff too. So <clears throat> instead of say um, having like today, well, let's go back like to 1991, which is when I quit my last newspaper job, you would have a, a copy editor who actually edited reporters' stories, wrote the headline on that story, laid out the page that the story was going to be on, and oversaw the production of the page in the production department. So you have one guy doing about four different jobs, and then proofing the papers that came off the press late at night. Uh, back in the day, you would have the reporter who wrote the story, an assistant city editor who read the story, a city editor who back-checked that, wow. a news editor who looked over the story, decided where it deserved to go in the paper, an assistant news editor who would give it a look-see, kick it over to a copy editor who would only edit the copy, maybe write a headline, that was it, kick it back to a slot man who was the last line of defense. A series of checks and balances. Exactly. Then it goes to a guy who's running a linotype machine, which sets type in hot lead. He's going to read the son of a bitch before it goes anywhere. Then it goes to a proof. The proof gets kicked back to the copy desk. The copy desk is reading that. Then it goes to the press. The press runs. You're looking at the press. And they could do that in like six-hour increments? Oh, yeah. It was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. We had all this huge talent, all these very specialized jobs, and people who yeah. were very good at them. You must have just felt like you're like on a constant run. You must have just felt like, oh, I'm like three days in a hell of a run here because you're just working off nervous energy the whole time. Yeah, because you, at the Sun, where we only did the one edition, we did a morning edition. That was my first job. I was a, a copy boy. I was freshly dropped out of college. And I'd done a series of jobs that basically sucked, you know, like yeah. being a janitor or uh, home construction, that sort of thing. Just <clears throat> really pain in the ass, low wage hard work jobs that didn't use any of what I considered at that time to be my talents, right, of which I had none. <laughs> I ended up with this job as a copy editor with the son, I thought. Got a couple years of J school, this is going to be suave, right? You roll in at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, or, yeah, yeah, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and things would start really slowly. You know, stories start coming in in dribs and drabs. And, the pace picks up gradually as the shift goes on. And come the lunch hour, everybody's starting to get a little twitchy, you know, and as the deadline starts approaching, there's more and more shit flying around. Like if your story's not good enough, if you're not happy with it. It's getting kicked back. We need to have somebody make a few calls on this. You know, this sucks. The story is going nowhere. That's, we're kicking it back from A1 to A2 to B1 to C1. You know, we're going to stick back in the classified somewhere. Now nah, we're not running it at all. Fuck that. We need something to plug the hole. Yeah, so it's just madness. Total madness by the time the deadline finally came around. And then, boom, the press runs and everybody goes, Whew. Wow. Look at the time. Let's go out and get fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and you did that over and over again, day in and day out. How long were your days? Um, they were fairly short unless there was something major going on. 
So you know, you're just doing your basic eight-hour shift, especially if you're nobody important, and a copy boy is nobody important. I don't even think they have them anymore. Um, so you know, as soon as your shift is done, off you go. There's always some poor sap who has to stay around and watch the press run. Sure. And if something big happens, presidential assassination, papal death, um, Nixon resigning. Nixon resigned when I was working at the Sun. Ford steps up and takes the job. Patty Hearst, the SLA. SLA got burned the fuck up when I was working at the, at the Sun. So you'd have those days where it was a total madhouse, where the news was just bigger than... Because there's a hard hold. There's a hard print-by day, so print-by time. So you're like, you're trying to gather as, as much, much information as you can in the shortest time possible. What would, beyond just the obvious of like direct sales or whatever, what kind of, uh, what are the, like the competition markers if you're working at the Sun and you're looking at the Gazette and vice versa? Like, how do you say like, oh, our story was better or their story was better? That's always a sort of a subjective judgment. Um, the Sun tried not to be in direct competition with the Gazette too much because it was uh, outmanned and outgunned on several fronts. It was a much smaller paper, smaller circulation, smaller staff, smaller budget. Um, so the, the Sun really couldn't be everywhere that the Gazette was. The Gazette was owned out of town by uh, Freedom Newspapers, Inc., out of Orange County, California. Their biggest paper was the Orange County Register. So the Gazette could rely on phenomenal money from out of town to buttress their ad sales against competition. Mm. So um, they would um, go out and cover the mortal shit out of everything. It would cover all the school boards in town, sure, sure. the cops, the courts. The so they would just courts. beat you by just pure information. Smother you by covering everything. Yeah. The Sun would try to be where they weren't. The Sun would cover um, the stories behind the stories. They would do excellent feature stories. Um, still try to cover the more time intensive. More time-intensive, more heavy-lifting. Um, they would still hit the high points. You obviously have to cover the cops, because people love to know what crime is occurring in their neighborhoods. You have to cover the courts, because that's where the cops wind up. Um, you have to cover the city government, to some extent. And after that, you can pretty much you know, throw caution to the wind and say, well, we're going to go cover the city council, but we're going to cover it in the way that the Gazette doesn't. Mm -hmm. We're going to undermine it somehow or another. Instead of just doing the nuts and bolts about what the city council did on Tuesday, we're going to do the story about what it means what they did. Yeah. How will this affect you? How will this raise your taxes? How will this lower your taxes? Will this affect your neighborhood, your children, your schools? So they tried to tell the story behind the story. Did a beautiful series on prostitution in Colorado Springs. That one comes up every now and then. Oh, that, that's a guaranteed seller. Everybody loves a good murder story. <laughs> I mean, as long as their name's not in it. As long as their mom isn't in it. <laughs> you, know, you, you see your picture of your mom getting a frog walk down the street. It's <laughs> sort of spoiling your day. You want uh, honey? No, thanks. Gracias, buddy. No worries. So, uh, Normally I bring booze, but I figure it might be a little early for that. Actually, I've quit drinking, so. Really? When did You've that? Been How drinking long? by yourself. How um, long? January. 
What brought that on? Just to test yourself, or? Yeah, kind of. Um, it's kind of a longish story. Um, I come from a long, distinguished lines of drunkards. Sure. Likewise. Yeah, male and female, both sides of the family. Yeah. Yeah. Dad was a drunk. His brother was a drunk. His dad, their dad, was a drunk. On my mom's side. Irish, Irish Catholic, right? Irish Catholic. Total whiskey heads, you know, sure. sidewalks off there all day long. Dad would drink these giant martinis <laughs> in like old-fashioned glasses. It's not a problem if it's a classy drink. Yeah, it was stylish. Yeah. But his idea of a stylish martini was like about, you know, nine fingers of pop-off vodka in an old-fashioned glass with an olive in it. Sure. He hit three or four of those before. The he glass, went. what glass you drink it out of is very important to Got the have a quality glass. Sure. Yeah, you don't want to hit it out of the bottle. Oh, no, you're not an animal. It makes you a wine out of it. Yeah. Then you wrap it in a paper bag and you go sit in the street. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I inherited the family curse to some degree. Sure. Although I was more interested in drugs early on than alcohol. And um, every so often I would use, you know, like New Year's Day, as an excuse not to drink for a month. Just to make certain I still could. Because I don't think anybody sets out to become a booze head. Sure. No. Um, certainly, Dad didn't. Um, I'm certainly. I'm certain that my mom's dad didn't. All my yeah. cousins. I'm certain. Decided yeah, it wasn't a, uh, an ambition. Yeah, you don't wake up one morning and go, you know, I'd really like to be a pain in the ass drunk because mm. it looks like fun. I like to be a burden. Yeah, I, I want to be a burden on society, <laughs> cause my relatives some anguish. Um, so um, yeah, you know, every couple of years I'd quit for a month and say. Yeah, I can still do it. Just to prove to yourself you're not an alcoholic, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't done that in several years. I just sort of got out of a habit. Yeah. Last January, I got this horrible flu. I just, like, coughing all the time. Yeah. I never get sick. Yeah. I get this friggin' flu, and I'm just... <clears throat> coughing and hawking and spitting. Can't sleep, you know, can't uh -huh. eat, don't want any food. Sick as a pig. And uh, by the time I finally shake it, it's like ten days later, I I'm not drinking during this 10 days. I thought, well, eh, maybe I haven't done it in a while. I'll, I'll go the month. Keep it going. Just yeah. Go the month again, just to make sure I still can. Yeah. As soon as I, I make that ruling, right, I catch some other bug. I catch some hideous, like, sinus infection head cold combo. Yeah. Blowing snot all over the place, you know, running through box after box of Kleenex. It's just disgusting. Nobody wants to be around me because I never know when some hideous snot rocket is going to come <laughs> flying across the room. So I, well, I'll wait until I get past this cold sinus infection, and then we'll see about the drinking. By this time, it's into February, and I'm thinking, well, keep this going. Let's see how long the string will run out. Yeah, uh, I don't feel any. So you didn't go to like to any meetings or get any chips? No, or... I'm not twelve stepping or anything like that. I yeah. just. I sort of got tired of it, I think, because I've been doing it for so long. Yeah, if you figured out that you don't need it to be happy or go to bed or decompress, if you figured out other ways to decompress it, then... No, it, I mean, it, it, I, I've noticed it now, you know, like, because my excuse was always cycling. I was like, well, I can't, I can't, you know, booze it up. I'm at the race, I'm training hard or whatever, yeah. you know, and then, like... I got 200 kilometers to ride tomorrow. I can't have a, right. a bottle of wine. And, you know. Well, I was, I was lucky that I never got the taste for beer. Like, mm -hmm. I never 
beer is an issue. It's real easy to find too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I don't. Very rarely will I think a beer is good. Like a, a beer sounds good. It's, it's a pretty rare uh, thing. But the for me, it's always whiskey. Like I'm, because it's like yeah. you feel, you know, like because you you see people who are into beer, and then they polish off like four to six eight beers at, at night mm -hmm. and they have like this mess by them you know and you're like look at this dude look how much you drink but when you're with whiskey if you have four or five fingers it's in one glass yeah you have you're still working on the same bottle you're like a gentleman exactly there's there's no destruction around you right you know, you're just sitting there you class you know you got it's a finger out yeah i got like three cubes in here I'm a, I'm, I'm a have, fucking gentleman. I'll add another cube. Yeah, yeah. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just make this glass stretch a little bit. Yeah, this. Uh, so I've definitely noticed, like, because you know, when you as you go from racing to being a director, mm -hmm. and you're following the race, and it's such an anticlimactic feeling after the race because, like, you, you go into it and you do all the strategy into the race, and and you're. Then the climb comes, everything happens, mm -hmm. and you're in the car. Mm -hmm. you ha you're, you're just in a car. You're just driving a car. Like, yeah. there's not a... And you, you finish, you get back to the hotel, and you're mentally so sideways that you can't exercise. You can't go out for a run or a ride if you wanted yeah. to. You still got some notes to take, probably. Yeah. Thinking about the next race down the road. Yeah, but like, how... But you have all this physical pent up energy, right. like it's so like how do you make the body come down to where the head's at? Like oh, I'll just yeah, just have a few fingers of whiskey here. Well, that's the way it is with journalists, you know, with cops, with yeah. doctors, psychiatrists, you know, anybody who finds themselves in a high pressure uh, professional lifestyle, you get yourself so amped up by the end of the shift. Journalists are notorious for this. You, know, you see a lot of journalists and cops hanging out at the same bars. Um, you can't go home and go to sleep. It's one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you need to wind down. Got to go have a beer somewhere. Yeah. yeah. When uh, when I was at the Sun, it was like notorious, right? And we had all these dope fiends on staff. You know, a lot of weed smokers and uh, tequila fiends. So we'd go down to uh, Jose Muldoon's and just get twisted on margaritas and yeah. go back to somebody's house, smoke up a whole bunch of weed, um, get up, do it again the next day. You know, you. Shift on through the the day, amping it up, amping yeah. it up, amping it up. Press runs, let's rock, get fucked up. <laughs> and uh, it was just the way things were done. It was how you release pressure, man. You yeah. had to. Yeah, I mean, especially probably being a journalist because you see so much bullshit. You just see so like. Yeah, no, this is particularly true with cops. You know, cops yeah. see absolutely the worst side of human nature, and journalists are on the fringe of that too. Yeah, pretty much right in that same neighborhood. You see. Yeah. People uh, killing each other, yeah. cheating each other, robbing each other, yeah. um, pretending to be something that they're not. You well, that, and then you have the people who read your stuff. Hollering who, at you. Yeah, who are, by and large, probably hayseeds and uneducated, and mm -hmm. they, wanna, they can't wait to tell you your opinion. Yeah. A lot of that's still going on. Yeah, a lot of it back then. It took them longer to get around to telling you. <laughs> it's always uh, funny to me with the human condition on how when you enjoy something, you never let the person really know. <laughs> it's true. But you cannot... Like, you're like, I enjoy this. 
That's great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that again. I'm mm. gonna I'm gonna listen to this person's stuff. I'm gonna watch this person. I'm gonna read this person. But if you, but that, that's like by and large the extent of it. Yeah. Whereas I'm never gonna tell that person that I love what he or she. Well, does. the fact that I'm continuing to support their stuff is enough. That that should be enough. But if they say something I don't agree with, holy asshole! <laughs> totally. Like the guy will give you, you know, hundreds of hours of. Basically free entertainment and knowledge, and but yeah. he fuck he slips once <laughs> with one minute issue. How dare you disappoint me? Yeah, like uh, you know, like with comedians, like the guys will you could tell like a racist joke, um, uh, a sexist joke. Uh, you know, even mm-hmm. with guys, you could do like uh, some guy. You could do a like an anti-woman joke, like a like a sec, like just really homophobic, joke. homophobic. Do this, yeah. but then like, uh, if the guy's brother has Down syndrome, and then you make a Down syndrome, like holy shit, dude! No, <laughs> you are so fucked up. That's you wrong. You are the king of the assholes. He's like, like, well, you didn't stick up for everybody else. Yeah, you weren't defending all my other brothers here. It's either I sh- I either none of it's okay or all of it's yeah, okay. I shit in your buckwheat, and all of a sudden you're upset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, comedians, as far as I'm concerned, were the first bloggers. You know, they were the people who got that instant feedback. Yeah. Uh, comedians, uh, anybody who takes a stage, musician, actor, you know how it's going. Anybody who's up there in real time, you know, you're out there giving giving them what you got, and you can tell whether they're liking it or not because they're telling you. Oh. Booing you, throwing shit at you. When I was doing uh when I was doing it for a while, oh man, I, uh, so this is good. So Casey Gibson lives in town. <laughs> yeah, Casey, he's my man. So uh, I started doing stand up for a bit, and uh, there was like a local competition, and I, I just nailed this competition. Got second, and I beat. Sweet. I'd only been doing it for like maybe a month. Uh-huh. And I beat, like, all these guys who've been doing it for years. And the one guy who beat me, like, uh, I, he was, I, he was, he was, uh, he was obviously better. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, wow, that's pretty good. So, so you got flogged by a pro, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I was totally fine with that. Yeah. Then I was like, man, I'm getting pretty good. It's because I killed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I may have said something, like, on Twitter. Like, normally I don't let any friends or family watch me. Mm-hmm. Like, no, because... I, I usually bomb and I used to date a stripper like that. She didn't like it when I came down to the club. <laughs> just stay away. Well, it's because you were so jealous. You just you scare everybody off. Oh, <laughs> um, so I invite Casey Gibson because I say something about it on Twitter like, "Oh, I'm over here." Casey's like, "Oh, I show up." Casey's there. Like, no I'm like, yeah, and Casey's there with a friend, and I'm just like, "Oh, okay, cool. This is that's very nice that Casey came up," and I bombed. So, so like hard. like I I bombed this is how bad I bombed. I bombed bad enough where when I got off a stage and sat with my thoughts for a couple minutes, mm-hmm. went over to Casey's table, he was gone. <laughs> he left. He felt so bad for me. Oh man. He knew. Like that like when your friend's like, he'll be better off if I just leave. That's how <laughs> he, bad. He doesn't need my input right now. I <laughs> It's like when you roll across the line, DFL, you know, they've torn down the course. Yeah, yeah. Not even anybody taking your time. Yeah, your coach just leaves you. He's just like, well, I... Anybody here? I need a ride home. (laughs) 
I figured you would, you needed some time alone. <laughs> oh no, I, uh, I still. I, so yeah, to to top that off, yeah, I don't. Anytime I decide to do an open mic again or anything, I don't tell anybody. <laughs> After that experience, like, did he put you off? Were you were you nervous that you had a friend in the audience? Or? Oh no no no! It didn't put me off. It was just the I. So my jokes are always, um, I because I'm not a good comedian at all. I have just one joke writing style. Mm-hmm. So if that style doesn't go, so that style normally is like. Uh, premise that draws people in like a, like a heartwarming like mm-hmm. a sad premise uh, that usually tr- brings females in like hey, mm-hmm. yeah so I want to say something that like pulls all the ears in so you say something like um, uh, I had this this dog growing up and it was uh, this family dog and like before this is so I'll just do the setup to one of my jokes mm-hmm. um, I had this dog as my best friend and there wasn't a, if there's a photo of me before the age of 12, this dog is in it. There's not a photo of me then. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I was sick a lot as a kid and I didn't go to school. So I didn't have a lot of friends and, you know, I didn't, I didn't get invited to a birthday party till I was 15. Mm-hmm. And but this dog was my, f- so like you draw them in that way. Right. Right. Yeah. Punchline of the story is I end up murdering the dog with a hammer to prove that I'm a man. <laughs> So yeah, I can see why that why that might put the wrong crowd off. So <laughs> I feel like a lot of the time the crowd laughs out of relief. Right. They're like, oh, he's just a liar. <laughs> so like, if that if it works the first time, if yeah. the first joke pops off and mm-hmm. everybody goes like, oh, this fucker, this guy was just messing with you, yeah. then you're gonna enjoy the next seven minutes mm-hmm. of me with a fake premise coming up to, and they go like. What's next? Yeah, so then when you say like who here sports? has a does anybody here like have a ba- like a like a kid, like a baby? Mm. They get excited because they're like, Oh, he's gonna tell a baby joke mm. that's gonna end up horrible. But whereas if the dog joke bombs and then you say well who here has a baby, everybody's just like, Fuck this guy. <laughs> he's just You're me. not gonna take a hammer to my baby. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, that takes a lot of levels to get up on stage like that, man. What what drove you in that direction? I just appreciated comedy. I think it, it's really the equivalent of like watching the Tour de France and then mm-hmm. entering a local race. There it is. Yeah. It's. I never had any aspirations. I was actually going to be any good at it, or. Mm. But you don't want to figure out how to get a laugh, right? Like oh, yeah. that's the. And it is. It, it feels great when you get like. There's nothing better than the sound of somebody laughing for the right reasons. Yeah, and yeah. when you're like. When you, because right before you get on stage, you're completely convinced that these are the worst jokes in the world. Like you write them at home, and you're like, "Oh, this is great. This is fucking magic." And then ten seconds before show time, you get in, you're looking at your notes, and you're like, "What is this? What this was is, I thinking? This is remarkably stupid." Uh, that's the way I feel about columns and cartoons. You know? Yeah, you're sitting there. You got a deadline ahead of you. Your audience is waiting. Yeah. You're putting that last little bit of ink on the paper, or you're closing out that last copy of Microsoft Word, and you're thinking, "Boy, it sure seemed like a good idea at the time." <laughs> what did uh? How did you get into cycling? Um, pure dumb luck, really. Um, I'd always ridden a bike. Um, 
Dad, Dad was a big jock. Dad played uh, semi-pro baseball when he was young, before World War II. Liked football, all the traditional sports. And he loved riding a bicycle. So we'd go off on these little family you know, bicycle rides in the evening. And um, that was our transportation when we were kids. It was how we got around. Uh, San Antonio, Colorado Springs, uh, shit, Canada. I think I had my first bike when I was five, mm. something like that. It was a replica of a uh, like a Canadian police scooter. You know, those little scooters that the coppers used to drive, sure. uh, write you up for a parking ticket. Sure. Uh, that's what it looked like, except you could pedal it. So uh, that was my first must bike. must have been so cool. You know, oh, this yeah, is it's great. totally hip. You know, I said, yeah. I'm a cop. Check it out. <laughs> Didn't know I'd become a criminal later, but you know, <laughs> you've got to start somewhere. Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, I used a bicycle to get around everywhere. I rode my bike to school. I rode it to my friend's house. I rode it away from my parents. Um, it was my escape from the household. I could go yeah. off and do whatever I wanted. I had transportation. Yeah, that's when parents still let kids go roam around. And they preferred it, you know. Yeah, they're, they're like, get out, out of the house. house. Yeah, I got shifted. I remember here. my mom yelling that at me. Yeah, piss off. <laughs> I come back. Dinner's at, dinner's at six. Dinner's at six. I don't want to see your ass until five thirty, and then wash up and sit down at the table and shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know, in the meantime, take your bike. Would your parents do the thing where dinner was at six, and if you weren't there, they would sit there and wait? So like, if you showed up at six oh five, you had like three people at the table just Pissed staring at you. Yeah. Yeah. We were, you know, being an Air Force family, you learn early on that there is a chain of command and you are very, very low on the chain. You are, in fact, the last link on the chain of command. Dad is a colonel, you are a private. Shit rolls downhill. Shit rolls downhill and you are always living in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, anyway, I rode a bicycle everywhere and didn't have a driver's license until my first year of college because I refused to take driver's ed. I thought it was a waste of time. Sure. But you know how to drive. Your friend showed you. It's a car. How hard can it be? Yeah. You got a wheel that makes it go places. You got all these pedals down here that do different Gas things. Gas break honk. You Gas break honk. A lot of weed to smoke, you know. You're good to go. That's not a cup holder. That's an ashtray. <laughs> exactly. So, um, shit, you know, I never, never really got hold of a car until... So like 19, and then I promptly wrecked it. When did you do your first race, bike race? Oh, I was old, man. I was 30-something. I was actually old enough to race Masters, but I raced, oh, wow. so I raced Cat 4. Where was that? What's it was car? the um, Strasbourg Time Trial in 87. Strasbourg Time Trial. Why does that name even sound familiar? Because it was fucking awful. Um, you, may have, you may have done it before they lost the course, but it was an out-and-back like Moriarty. It was out by where DIA is now in Strasbourg. They used to have like the state championships up there? And it was totally out and back. It wasn't a whole lot of cornering. It was I think I've done that. I straight out and back U-turn, slightly rolling on the way out, slightly rolling on the way back. Always windy. Um, I'd been riding a bike for fitness, um, trying to lose all the weight I put on while I was working for a really bad newspaper in Oregon. And I'd finally gotten down to the point where I thought I'd might be able to compete. I'd done a couple of centuries and I didn't make an embarrassment of myself. You know, I, sure. I thought, why not? You know, pin on a number, take a shot, see how it goes. I read all the books, you know, this is going to be fun. Seeing Greg Lamont race the bike. Ooh, what that What kind of books did you read? Like Lamont? Oh, a lot of uh, Fred Matheny. You know, I was reading Bicycling Magazine, of course, like you do. Um, watching everything I could find about bicycle racing on television. Um, saw some of the coolers live. 
and thought, this looks like it's a geek sport, right? Because yeah. nobody does it. Yeah. You know, it's not in the schools. It's not on television for the most part. If it is, it's tucked away on that third installment of Wide World, and you get like five seconds. When you find out about something that nobody in your immediate circle knows about, it's like you feel like you just struck gold. You're Columbus. You just discovered an entire new continent. Yeah. And it's all yours. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was a total weirdo sport. Everybody was running. Couldn't dig it at all. Running? Running? Really? With empty hands? What are yeah. you, crazy? I run when I'm being chased. That's exactly. It. If somebody's after me, I will run. But bicycling, it's got toys, there's technology involved. Sure. You get to wear all these cool clothes like Superman. Yeah. Finally, you get to be a superhero. Yeah. You get to put on the tight clothes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I did that Strasbourg time trial, and I was smoking it while I was... I hit that turnaround so fucking fast, I thought, I was made to be a bicycle racer. Look at me, I'm unnatural. And then I turned around and realized that I'd been driven by about a 30 mile an hour tailwind. Oh, shit. <laughs> it was the year where Yvonne Van Gent basically had to queer the numbers to make sure that everybody could still qualify for nationals. Really? The wind was so horrible that it was killing everybody's times. Oh. Guys like Bill Ramsey were sucking. Guys like Bill Ramsey weren't even breaking the hour. Right. Yeah. Just terrible. Yeah. That's funny, man. So uh, I did it, and I liked it, and I kept Your first it. race was an out-and-back TT, and you didn't walk away from the sport after that. Well, I figured it was a good way for a mental defective to start the sport, right? Because you're not going to crash anybody. Sure. Start Fair. with a crit? Good God, no. Did you pass anybody, or did you pass? Yeah, I passed a lot of people going out, and they all passed me coming back in. <laughs> <laughs> it sucked. My time was horrible. Yeah. Every time I meet with the sun <laughs> Where did you get into like uh, cycling and journalism? Well, that was uh, that was the culmination of a whole shitload of newspaper work. I started out at the Sun here in town. Okay. Went back to college this time in Greeley. Um, actually, came out with a GPA and a degree, which surprised the shit out of me. I'd finally learned how to fake it, if nothing else. Sure. Um, by the time I got out, all the guys I worked with at the Sun were now at the Gazette because it was more money, more prestigious paper, and they said. Kid, you want a job? Come on down. Work oh. for us. So at six months out of college, I've got a job in a newspaper. Okay. Um, worked for the Gazette. Did that for three years, I think. Moved down to Tucson to the Daily Star. What brought you to Tucson? Just the paper? I wanted to get the hell out of Colorado Springs. I yeah. spent too much time here. Yeah. Um, the guy who had been the editor-publisher of The Sun was now running the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. Okay. So I had an in. You know, this is how you get around in newspapers. It's yeah. not talent. Same with cycling. There you go. It's who you know. You know yeah. Can I be on your team? Yeah. Fucking A. Let's go. So I go down there. I work for him. Hated it. Nine months of the, the longest nine months of my life. Um, split that newspaper. Dipped around for a while. Went out to California. Wound up working for the newspaper in Oregon in Corvallis. The Corvallis Gazette Times. By this time, I'm starting to realize that it's not the individual town that I'm having problems with the individual newspaper. It's the fact that all newspapers are basically the same newspaper. There's a, a hierarchy that you have to fit into. Um, it's the same stories over and over again that make the news. People getting killed, yeah. people getting robbed, people getting yeah. cheated. Yeah. But it's what I know how to do, and I've got like three newspapers in me now. You know, four newspapers, I gotta keep it up. You can't give up at yeah. this point. So I've come too far. I, I might as well keep on going. Yeah. 
I moved to Colorado again. I take a job down in Pueblo at the Chieftain. I worked for there for a while. They paid me to go away. <laughs> ended up at a chain of weeklies in Denver. That ended badly. I got laid off for being a pain in the ass. And at this point, you know, I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm realizing, oh, it's me. Now I think the problem may be me here. You know, newspapers and I are just a bad fit. I like the words. I like writing headlines. I like playing out pages. I like everything about the job except actually having it. Are you just like a contrarian, or do you just go against the natural? Grade? Yeah, I'm, I'm a natural contrarian, I think. If I can cause problems, and if I'm bored and have the time to cause problems, I will cause problems. So I moved to Santa Fe, this is, um, 1987 and thereabouts. I'd just taken up bicycle racing, so I had something to distract me sure. from causing problems. Yeah. Um, I get a job at the New Mexican. Um, I'm racing my bike a ton. I'm racing 30, 40 times a year, which is not bad for an amateur. Yeah. I suck. You know, I'm not any good at it, but I'm really enjoying it because yeah. it's not newspaper work. Yeah. Um, and I'm not running around with my old cronies, so I'm not... You have an alter ego now. Yeah. I'm not snorting up cocaine. I'm not uh, drinking a whole lot of whiskey. I'm not yeah. smoking a lot of weed and eating acid and yeah. you know, destroying bars and acting a fool. I'm, Some of that sounds fun. It was a lot of fun <laughs> while I was doing it, but it gets really tiresome. Um, I'm working at a newspaper where I'm respected, I'm racing my bicycle where I'm not respected but I'm enjoying it, yeah. and um, then the whole newspaper thing starts to get a little sideways again. The, the newspaper's editor who hired me gets the sack, and he was an old school news kind of guy, kind of guy I liked working for. He didn't give a shit about feature stories, he was all about hard news. And that was fun because there was always something exciting going on at the paper. And yeah. the publisher threw him over the side. I knew that I was not long. They usually, that they usually change over. They, they start thinking, who else gives me a pain in the ass around here? Firing that guy felt good. I need to do it some I got a taste for blood. <laughs> so I started looking around. I thought, uh, I like this bicycle racing thing. It's a lot of fun. There are bicycle magazines out there, and maybe I could work for one of them. So was there like was bicycling around by then, or was it just one? Bicycling, bicycle guide. Um, Vela News had just moved to Boulder. Um, John Wilcoxon, Felix McGowan, and David Walls were setting up shop in Boulder and basically reinventing Vela News from what uh, Barbara George had made of it. And they put an ad in editor and publisher, which was the trade magazine at the time, looking for a managing editor. I see this thing. I said. This is my ticket out of this fucking newsroom. Sure. I go up, I apply for the job, I do the interview, I don't get the job, thank fucking God, because I would have been terrible at it. It involved overseeing the basic construction of Velenus, as it later became to be, a fairly well-respected international magazine covering bicycle racing. A lot of staff oversight, a lot of hiring freelancers, budgets, all that shit that I hated. Yeah. I would have been terrible at it. I would have been fired. Either that, months. like... Just because you hate it when it happens to you, like I, I've seen guys go from being the contrarian to when they get in the leadership role, they become a Stalinesque. Exactly, a Maoist. Yeah. And I had already had my bout of Maoism when I was in college. Oh, okay. I, I knew what kind of a fascist I'd turn into. You knew you had it in you. Yeah. You, well, they have the saying, like, you hate in people what you see in yourself. Yeah, you become what you hate eventually. Yeah. yeah. 
I would have been a very bad manager. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you don't get the job? I don't get the job, but they say, we like the cartoons. The cartoons are funny. You want to draw cartoons for us? Cover some bike races? Yeah. This is like March of 1989. I say, sure. And that basically is what started the whole thing. I started covering some small bike races for Velo News, drawing the editorial cartoons every issue. <clears throat> um, when I gave up on newspaper altogether in 91, and we moved up here to Colorado Springs uh, to take care of my mom who had Alzheimer's, I was depending on the job at Velo News, and the guy said, Bicycle Retail and Industry News, which he just started uh, for my income because you know, I wasn't going to do another newspaper job. There was just no fucking way. I wasn't going back to work at the Gazette. There was just no way in hell I'd do that. So I bit the bullet and made like zero money that first year. Maybe $10,000, $8,000, yeah. something like that. Living in my mom's house, you know. Yeah. I'm freshly married. I'm in my late 30s. I'm living with my mother who has Alzheimer's. Everything is going great. Yeah, living the dream. You know, talk about the 10K dreamer, Jesus. Um, but but you're ingratiating yourself with these other industries and these people. And the more you do it, the more people you meet. Yeah. Uh, the more opportunities coming away. So I started working for other magazines, other newspapers, you know, freelancing cycling stories here and there. And I got to the point where I was making enough money off a very few clients that I could afford to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, I never got rich, but we paid the bills. I make as much money as my wife does now. Yeah. And she has an actual job that she has to be at, you know, where she has to answer. But she just look at you like real shit when she leaves in the morning and you're still like... Every now and then. Do change your pants before she comes home <laughs> to make it seem like you actually put, you did something? Never. Now, she's, uh, she's been very good about it. Okay. Um, the first couple of years were a bitch, you know, because yeah. we're living in my mom's house. She's crazy. Yeah. I've pulled Shannon out of Santa Fe where she had a professional job. Yeah. And we're both here in this town. She's trying to find something to do. I'm trying to make a go of this cycling journalism. Thing. She's trying not to resent you. She's trying not to have me killed. Yeah. You know? And a lot of people would have stepped up to, to handle that for free of charge. Um, but it worked out. Um, the I remember, I still remember like being a kid, getting Velo News and then seeing the cartoons. Yeah, because you're a kid, you're like, oh, there's a cartoon in there. You're just drawing to the cartoon. I still remember, I remember one in particular that made me really laugh because just the concept was so ridiculous was, it was one of those years that um, Matt I got like first through fourth at mm -hmm. Mary Roubaix. Mm -hmm. And there was, the guys said, oh, you crashed, what happened? It was like somebody who had been racing Roubaix. And the cartoonist guy with the dazed look in his face like, I got passed by these four map by guys going so quick, I got off my bike to see what was wrong. <laughs> I stole that from Gilbert Sheldon. Are you familiar with Gilbert Sheldon? Uh-uh, uh, -uh, uh, -uh. Underground cartoonist of the 1960s. He's still alive. He, uh, he lives and works in Paris now. He um, started out drawing a cartoon called Wonder Warthog for, I think it was the University of Texas Daily, and they ended up getting it in drag cartoons, which is how I stumbled across him when I was a kid. Um, the Wonder Warthog was this superhero, a giant warthog, no yeah. shit. Um, it was sort of the Superman mythology, but the Superman character was this giant fucking warthog. The, uh, his alter ego was Philbert Desnex, uh, deuce reporter for the Motherlode Morning Mungpine. And I just, I loved it. The shit just cracked me up. And one of the, the best gags he ever did, and he kept reprising it through 
different aspects of that cartoon and another one he did in the 60s and 70s called The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, was the deal about somebody moving so fast past another person that the first person being passed had to get out of his vehicle to see if he'd stopped. <laughs> now it was cops, um, two hippies on a bicycle passed us so fast yeah. that we had to get out of our cop car to see what was the matter. Yeah, it's a great concept. Yeah, it's, it's so simple, but I don't, I, it's I don't great know. visual. Yeah. You don't even have to see the accident to know it's going to be terrible. <laughs> what happened to you guys? Ah, this two hippies on a bicycle passed us so fast we got out of our car to see what was wrong. Right. That's great. Uh, so I've always, the more I've been paying attention now I'm getting out of racing, especially with like uh, the whole doping arc and, and cycling media now. Like mm -hmm. it's a very, uh, I don't know, click heavy. Because now it's clicks, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, like how many clicks, how many How many views? eyeballs? How many eyeballs got that? We're all arranging our eyeballs there. Uh, you've come from like, uh, you started as a journalist, like a legitimate newspaper journalist. An actual journalist, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and now you see people who, you know, never worked for a paper and not into any fault of their own. Maybe it's just the opportunities aren't there like it was, but uh, there may be a little bit more like, like, uh, I don't want to be like mean because I don't mean to. I just I have a really shitty vocabulary. As a <laughs> more like participant fan base. Mm -hmm. uh, fan with laptop. Fan with laptop. Mm -hmm. Um... Because, you know, the pay is not great and it's so much content is needed for an online media. Do you, does part of you like look at some aspects of where it's going and wince or? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's distressed me and other people for years, uh, the state of journalism in general, not just cycling journalism. Um, cycling journalism is afflicted to some degree by the fan with laptop syndrome, but that's just sort of endemic to sports writing in general. Yeah, um, I mean, probably news in general because blogs and everything, like Twitter, like news breaks on Twitter now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nobody needs to fact check Twitter. Newsies follow Twitter. Yeah. You know, serious reporters, folks for the New York Times, they're on Twitter, they follow Twitter, they use it for, uh, as, a, as a source, they use it as a lead for what's hot, you know. Yeah. We need to get on this shit, you know, it's all over Twitter. Um, news in general, I think, has become more like sports writing always was. Um, fan with laptop. You're interested in what you're covering, perhaps a little too interested, a little too personally involved in it. You have a favorite team, you have a favorite quarterback, you have a favorite cyclist. Um, it can color the way that you report the sport. Um, I think you've seen some of that in cycling journalism over the years. People who were too close to Lance Armstrong, who were too close to Greg Lamond, who were too close to whomever, didn't want to believe that Lamond might have been telling the truth when he said that um, Lance and the Burks conspired to cost him his bicycle brand, that other people might have been telling the truth when you know, they said Lance was doping and Lance said he wasn't. Um, well, I think whereas before, I think the, 
where before, like, the, the professionalism level of, okay, this guy has an accusation against somebody, mm-hmm. say, maybe six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Not, not even talking about Lance. It could be anybody. Mm-hmm. There's, I feel like there was still that professional level of, like, well, we don't really want to report on suspicion or rumor or hearsay, mm-hmm. so we can't. So maybe that transferred into the Armstrong thing of like, well, I don't know. Like, we, uh, what are we going to report a rumor? Mm-hmm. You know, and then that to the day to now where, you know, Cycling News is like publishing a, you know, a, a phone transcript mm-hmm. that the guy obviously didn't want to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like that would have happened 10 years ago. The guy, I feel like the editor would have looked at him and be like, this is pretty half-cocked. Maybe not. It's it's hard to say. I mean, none of these organizations have what you'd call real deep pockets. Sure. For uh, for a Lance Armstrong story, for a story of that caliber, for example, um, nobody had the wherewithal to actually do the old-school style of research it would take to uncover the, the quote-unquote truth in the sure. Lance Armstrong story. Nobody at Vela News, nobody at Cycling News, nobody at Bicycling. Everybody was getting little bits and pieces of the picture, but nothing that they felt confident about printing because it would take money, bags and bags of money and time to chase the one story. Sure, it's a great story, a big story when you finally get it and you can tell the world that this is in fact the case, that Lance Armstrong has been using performance-enhancing substances and been lying about it for all these years. But while you're devoting your money and your attention and your manpower and all your energy to that particular story, you've completely neglected your basic mission, which is to cover bicycle racing. Yeah. So a lot of people just made the decision to not cover the story as in-depth as they might want to. They Mm. wouldn't devote the energy to it, the time and the money. Because there are all these other things that they have to do. You know, you can't cover the Casper Classic. You can't cover the Welta de Bisbee, the, uh, the Giro, the Tour, all these events going on. You can't mm-hmm. cover the actual activity that your, your mission statement says you're deeply involved in sure. if you're buried in the one story you can't afford to cover anyway. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> on top of that, the, the amount of people that want to read about um, the Casper Classic versus the amount of people who want to read a soap opera dynamic of mm-hmm. that entails moralities and uh, skullduggery and all these things. It's got it all. It's got the full Ten Commandments, man. All ten of them. I've, uh, <laughs> I always thought it was funny because I think by and large a lot of cyclists are probably fairly agnostic, atheist types, I think a good percentage of, anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to see them basically lift lines from church sermons, Mm -hmm. and instead of, um, you just put out, you just take the word doping, you know, or sin, Mm -hmm. remove sin, put in doping. Thou shalt not. Yeah, and then put in, uh, you know, repent with, uh, admission or mm-hmm. uh you know whatever and it's 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 uh the best term i have for it now is this plagiarized regret <laughs> plagiarized regret that's good i like that 
It's not mine. I lifted it from an LCD mm -hmm. sound system song, but... Well, steal from quality. I mean, I googled the term. The term doesn't exist anywhere else but this LCD sound system song. And they haven't gone anywhere else. So I feel like if I just mentioned enough, eventually it'll become my own. There you go. Yeah. File the serial numbers off of it. Yeah, I'm gonna get a blog spot. Mm -hmm. like, just really plagiarize regret. I don't know if blog spots still exist. I think they do. Yeah, they're still out there. Uh, WordPress, I think, is stumping them pretty hard. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it seems like now's the time to really buy in the blog spot. There you I go. Love. So, what do you think about uh, cycling journalism coverage these days? You think it. I do. I'm so torn on it because I was. I'm such a fan of bike racing, mm -hmm. and I was lucky enough to be talented to do it and get paid for it. So like, I felt you have to participate. I mean, you were yeah. there in the belly of the beast. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel really. I took. I take it. I think more seriously than my colleagues who, when I was racing, mm -hmm. because they maybe weren't all that into cycling and maybe they didn't read about it whereas I would read about it and I I like the characters, I like the... There was so much that I liked about bike racing. Mm -hmm. And um, my traditional outlets to get that, um, to get profile pieces and um, Whatever, you know, like, I, I always enjoyed profile pieces, I enjoyed uh, learning about riders that way, mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> that, that, that takes so much time, you know, like, mm -hmm. to probably, I'm assuming, I've never written a profile piece, I've never written anything, but I would assume that to, like, figure out this, to get access to the rider, talk to him for a few days on and off at a race, create this arc, get it approved, whatever. Try to find an interesting angle that he's going to let you write about, whatever. All this stuff. It probably takes some time. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do, and it, you have to find a, a, an invested reader who's going to put the time into that, you know? And uh, I think it's... I think it's much easier to... Uh, write about doping, I guess. And because like I spent a great part of my career in that culture, mm -hmm. uh, I've already come to terms with everything. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's basically boring. Yeah, you've been there, you've done that, you've seen... I've seen everything up close, and I made a judgment, and... Mm -hmm. uh, like, what I've noticed now is, like, so I did a podcast with uh, Hinkapi and, and Levi, and I had a lot of, like, my friends go, like, you know, why do you give them a platform? Mm -hmm. And I feel, I kind of feel like if you listen to it, you understand. And you I've not listened to those two yet. Yeah, I mean, I think, to be frank, like, you know, like, some of them were, like, not, like, what, I, I've... I feel like if you're an intelligent person and you listen to the podcast, you can see that I like I don't try to force a, a view out there. I just let the person. I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to get any. So I feel like if the person sounds ridiculous, then they sound ridiculous, mm -hmm. and that's your judgment call. Mm -hmm. I'm not presenting everybody in their best light. I'm just letting them talk. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's 
okay, if these guys doped and I, and I didn't, and then they took something away, then the least they could do is be on a podcast, right? <laughs> I like that. That's a good idea. But I so so for me, it's like it's 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 boring. So it's not a scarlet letter mentality for you. You're you're not interested in branding people and saying. I think at the end, get the hints. I do. I, I, will, I mean, I will say this from like top to bottom. Like you have these guys who are very accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, in the one percentile of the sport, mm-hmm. and um, they are not. They're not very cool, mm-hmm. or I wouldn't. I would take their money. I'd be like, that'd be nice to not worry about cash for a while, but mm. I don't know. Like, you're not... I don't think they're... they're uh, how do you say it? Like, I don't think that they're anybody that you'd want to be. And I don't mean that in a mean way. Like, right. I'm not saying, like, that guy doesn't mean that as a very matter of fact. And they, they probably don't want to be me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm probably their worst nightmare. <laughs> but, God, I could have been greed. Yeah. What like, about that? I, I fully recognize that people are <laughs> like, oh, fuck, I, my, I don't want my career to end up like creeps. But <laughs> I don't know. I think, so I, I think I'm, I'm a bit harsh with sometimes with media because they have to feed clicks and, and clicks are... Playing, going back to what you said earlier about doping being easier to cover than other aspects of the sport, it's very true. It's so true of traditional media as well. It's one reason that they cover the cops, they cover the courts, they cover the city council. It's fed to you. It's, it's yeah. all there. All you have to do is pick it up and write about it. Yeah. Um, but going out and doing what they call an enterprise story, a feature story, um, that takes a little forethought, a little planning. Um, it may not pan out. And the payoff's not as great. It might be a great piece, but like... Or there may be nothing there at all. You go out and you interview a person you think is going to be a killer story. Sure, sure. going to be great quotes, you know, some yeah. serious background. And you spend a few hours, a few days with the person. And you come back and you go, no, I didn't really learn anything here. I didn't get much out of this person, but the person was really kind of boring. I wasn't sure. expecting that. There's, sure. there's no hook. There's no news angle. What? I just wasted three days. Yeah. And so nothing ever comes of it. Something always comes of the crime stories, though. Yeah. At least blotter's always there waiting for you. Yeah. And I, I mean, so I try to not fault. I try not to fault cycling news and ballon news and whoever when they when they lean on it, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, I guess back to the George Carlin thing is like, you wish that people were genuine in that they say, all oh, we want to, I'm tired of doping, I'm tired of doping. It's like, really? Cause if I look at your Twitter feed, that's all you, that's like when people are angry, mm-hmm. they have a point of view mm-hmm. and you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're, it's very hard to have a point of view when you're a happy person mm-hmm. and just relax. It's just like, no, I don't care. Not I mean, don't care. I literally, yeah. I literally do not care. I, I can't decide people's actions for them, hmm. and it doesn't. It's hard to have a nuanced view, and it's hard to exercise that. But well, that's that's one thing that we found. You know, basically just feeding the beast. You know, trying to uh, keep the site lively, keep the magazines lively, but. You've got, say, VelaNews.com. You've got the marquee story over there on the left. You've got 
10 stories on the right and then everything below the fold. So you're sitting there staring at your, your monitor and you've got your marquee and you've got your 10 stories over here. And you can have a story about the Giro, you can have a story about uh, how to build a proper cyclocross wheel, you can have a story about women's, training methodology, women's racing. women's racing, Lance Armstrong farts, you know, boom, boom, eyeballs, straight yeah. to the Lance Armstrong farts. Yeah. Doesn't matter what he does, yeah. to whom, why, the where's, the where's. I would just write a story every day that said like, in the tagline it would be like Armstrong comma, Cavendish comma, Doping, comma, um, and all the spider bots that go out and find it and feed it to people. Right, right, right. And yeah. just like there, you, yeah. And then the whole story would be like it would just be a paragraph of doping, 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 lines, 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 Cavendish, Cavendish, Cavendish. Or or a little bitty line that says, "Ha, got you again, got you again. Thanks for the click. <laughs> See ya. What's want to be it? <laughs> no, yeah, any, any Lance Armstrong story would beat the living snot out of. Anything that you spend a lot of time and energy. I, and I wonder that too. Like I brought it up to Neil Rogers. I brought it up to Daniel Benson. Like, at what point are you going to stop going to the Lions well? Like, is your is that going to be? I understand you have a beast to feed, but at what point, as a as a fucking human being, do you go? I don't give a fuck if this sinks. Like, I don't give a fuck if I am I going to. I will. It's like a comedian throwing away his old bag of his, he has five hours and he's like, I just lay on the, I've been on a professional on this, like five hours of jokes for 20 years. I need to do something different. Mm -hmm. Like, do you just fucking quit cycling, go somewhere else as a journalist? I don't know. Or do you just say like, I'm just not writing about Lance ever again? Well, and then, you know, the other side of that that beast, you've got the mouth down there, you know, the folks who want the Lance Armstrong stories, you've got the assholes up top who, want, who, who run the, the company. We want the views, yeah. We want the views. We want the ad sales. Sure. And no, no, I'm not saying that Neil Rogers is like, or Daniel Benson uh, aren't, they don't have somebody to report to. Mm. I'm just saying like, fuck, man, like it's, uh, I just, I hate that like no matter what day of the week it is, people who claim to hate doping can't stop talking about it. <laughs> I know. It's it's really it's irksome. The, the, the best, I brought up the analogy a couple times on the podcast, is, uh, is, it's, it's a, uh, I have like this Pizza Hut analogy. Like, mm -hmm. Pizza Hut is like the most successful pizza brand in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you look at revenue, you know, everything. Like, they've made the most money in the world. Uh, they would never make the top 50 of best pizzas in the world. Okay. So you have to distinguish that something, just because something's successful doesn't mean it's good. Yeah, and doesn't mean you want to eat it, that's for sure. Right. But, well, people with a taste for it, mm -hmm. people that know what pizza is, don't want to eat Pizza Hut. And some people we will eat anything. And by and large, people are ham and egg motherfuckers who will Just who don't mind eating ham and eggs. Set it down on the plate. I'll shovel it in. Keep bringing it until my arm gets tired. Right, right. And my problem is, is when ham and eggers think that they're fucking they're steak and eggers. Well, it's not the same. Here's something illustrative you might you might find amusing. When I was uh, working for the Gazette, 
Um, everybody had cycled through the police reporting side of things for a while because it was just a good way to learn how to write hard news fast, very simple. You know, the stories are handed to you. Guy robs bank, guy shoots girlfriend, uh, bomb goes off. All you have to do is put the pieces together, write up, you know, a few paragraphs, you've got yourself a newspaper story. So I'm on the police beat one weekend. There's an explosion down on, I think it was Fountain, down around Fountain, down by the old satellite hotel in that okay. general neighborhood. Yeah. So I'm, you know, listening to the police scanner. I'm the dude on duty. I go out there to check it out. Well, there's windows blown out on both sides of the street and a whole shitload of people milling around. I have no idea what's going on. Some sort of an explosion. I'm talking to the local coppers about it. And there's this, I noticed a little, little bag of shit lying over there on the driveway. And I'm talking to the cops and the cops say, newspaper carrier, kid, you know, 11, 12 years oh. old, out at Fort Carson, fucking around somewhere, finds himself a 122 millimeter mortar shell, puts it in his newspaper carrier bag, and he's carrying it with him on his rounds. Drops the bag on the sidewalk, mortar shell goes off, turns the kid into a pile of hamburger, blows windows out on both sides of the street. It's lucky nobody else got killed. So I'm standing there talking to the cop, writing down what he's saying, and all of a sudden this bag of shit on the sidewalk here is starting to take on special significance to me because that's the fucking kid. They've got him covered up so you can't see him, but that's what's left of this kid. I'm taking my notes and the cop wanders away to do whatever, and this ham and egger behind me tugs on my sleeve and says, Did you look under the blanket? Did you look under the blanket? Wow! That's what journalism is. You, you know, do you look under the blanket? The blanket's always there. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It, it cured me of police reporting, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and like you, as a consequence, um, when it comes to all the doping stories, you know, I got out of newspaper work so I wouldn't have to cover the cops anymore. Yeah. You know, I didn't like covering the cops. It wasn't fun. They were all sad stories. You know, There's rarely a happy story on the police beat. And for a lot of years, covering cycling was like being on the police beat. You know. I think it's a place for people who to feel fairly superior. I would never do that. That's not me. That's not my life. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I, why would anybody do that? That's the first thing that comes to mind. You know, why I, would you do that? I, I mean, I was, I was born on third base and thought I hit a triple. Why would, <laughs> yeah. why would I ever do that? No. Well, shit, man. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be on the podcast. <laughs> Most people don't like talking to me. It, you have to admit, it took me a little while to convince you. It, it did. It did. Um, you know, I'm the media. We don't like talking to the media. <laughs> we, know, we know what those bastards are like. Well, thankfully, I'm not media. I'm just an <laughs> You're a media. You've got a microphone here, man. Oh, is that all it takes? Yeah. Shit. You've got the toys. You've got the technology. You've got the time. You're the, you're the media. You're one of us now. I probably should be doing another job right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.